0: Chai FM, your station of choice since 2008 Welcome to Soul to Soul right here on 101.9 Chai FM I'm your host Rabbi Ari Kievman And today is Lag Ba'omer So would like to take this opportunity to wish each and every one of you out there A beautiful, happy and joyous Lag Ba'omer As we've been doing over the last couple of weeks, counting the Omer and discussing the significance, the importance of this 49-day countdown, our preparation for Shavuos. Well, today is the 33rd day of our countdown, hence it's called Lag Ba-Omer. It's a festive day. It is an important day in our calendar. Lag Ba'omer is on the 18th of Iyar, which is today. And, of course, each year it turns out on a different day, that's simply because the Hebrew and secular, the uh, Gregorian calendar, is obviously not synchronized with ours. We've previously discussed the importance of the synchronization of the calendars, the importance, in fact, it was in last week's Parsha, about keeping Pesach in the spring season and Sukkot in autumn in the Holy Land. And therefore, Lag Ba'Omar obviously falls on different days of the secular calendar each year. And today is that special day this year. Now in Hebrew, the letters also serve as numbers. So the word Lag is comprised of two letters. Lamed and Gimel, which together equals 33. Hence we get... Lag BaOmer, and unlike someone might say "Lach BaOmer," which is to laugh and to joy, this really is Lag BaOmer, the thirty-third day. Some festivals are biblical in origin. A few days ago, we were discussing Pesach Sheni, which is a biblical holiday, although it's not as renowned. Today is not a biblical holiday; it is. Not even, it's not a festival per se, but it's a day of significance in our tradition that we celebrate with tremendous joy and fanfare. I wouldn't even call it a rabbinic holiday, but nevertheless, it is a joyous Jewish holiday, and we discussed, just to quickly recap, some of the specific reasons of why we celebrate this day. Number one, we mentioned that it's the day of the passing, call it the yard site, of Rabbi Shimon bar Yochai. Now, Rabbi Shimon bar Yochai was one of the students of Rabbi Akiva, and as we discussed, the students of Rabbi Akiva were all dying during this period in a terrible plague, and although he's one of the surviving students who did not die in this plague, but I think the highlight about this being his yard site, which is symbolized and represented by the bonfires representing the great light that he brought into this world perhaps is of a greater significance in a sense. So I thought we should start today by discussing both of these events, discussing a little bit of the history, the traditions, the mystery and significance, and let's see if there's time to get even mystical as well. Now, although I mentioned Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai first, chronologically we would say, well, really the story of the students of Rabbi Akiva is something that preceded because Rabbi Shimon's from the five surviving later students. Now, we discussed how Rabbi Akiva began to study Torah at a later stage in his life, in fact, at the age of 40. Okay, perhaps that's. A late start, but certainly, as we discussed on Pesach Sheni, the message and lesson for all of us from that is that it's never too late, regardless what age and stage we might be in life. We could always learn. It's never too late to connect to our Torah, to our traditions, to our mitzvahs, to our history, to our family. Pesach Sheni taught us Nothing is ever Forgone. There's always an opportunity to make things up. Don't ever despair, give up thinking that something is lost. And Rabbi Akiva taught us that lesson. He exemplified it by becoming one of the greatest scholars, teachers, sages in Jewish history. And our sages compared his methodology to that of a sharecropper who goes out to the field and places wheat in one part of his basket and barley in another, and then spelt in another part, and then beets in another part. And when he comes home, he organizes everything and puts each food in its rightful place. So our sages tell us that similarly, Rabbi Akiva would study the many disciplines of Torah, and he would organize each in his mind, until he knew the entire Torah systematically and in that sense he tells us he exemplified to us that even if one has a late start with the right devotion and intention you could certainly catch up and surpass those who perhaps preceded you those who perhaps may have had the head start before you Rabbi Akiva became the primary repository of the oral law in his generation. And it was his responsibility to ensure its preservation and transmission in his, that we are able to study Torah today. It's thanks to him because he made sure that it was passed on, that it was transmitted to the next generation. And so to ensure that this knowledge would be accurately transmitted. Rabbi Akiva labored to teach each of his 24,000 Talmidim, his, his students. And you think about that number, it's, it's a great number. It's a, it's a lot of students. Uh, a lot of students needed to, to memorize the vast corpus of Halakha. And the students would actually divide into groups, the Talmud tells us. Each specializing in one area of Jewish law that became their area of expertise. So it's interesting that the Gemara tells us such a precise number of 24,000 that one teacher, think a teacher teaching a class of 24,000 students. So, in essence, um, I don't know if that number is a specific number or if it's a rounded off number, but if you do the math, you see that 600,000 students require 24,000 teachers and the Gemara tells us that the collective soul of the Jewish people numbers 600,000 or at least that's the number we're given in the Torah of the census of the Jewish men taken at the time of the giving of the Torah so he was symbolically teaching 24,000 students to teach to transmit the Torah to the next generation so he was in a sense, in his time, the one responsible for disseminating Torah in that way. And so, if you take the analogy of the sheer cropper, who is dividing all the different crop into different baskets, all of these students were designated as leaders of the next generation. And tragically, As we know, they all died in this period, between Pesach and Lagba Omer, and that's why we mourn for them during this time. It was a terrible blow to the future of the Jewish people. The very people who were expected to ensure the transmission of the oral law and the Jewish tradition were now dead. The oral law, and with it the survival of Judaism, was now literally at risk. And even though we know that Yes, Rabbi Akiva had five surviving students, including Rabbi Shimon Bar Yachai whose yard site his hilula is today. There's no doubt. There's no question that the plague impacted the breadth of knowledge that could have been transmitted and preserved by these sages. And think about the next generation that could have come. I mean, this was a terribly difficult time for the Jewish people, as it was because this was just after the destruction of the of the Second Temple. This is a really tragic time in our history. It was around this time that the Emperor Hadrian enacted a series of really cruel laws against the Jewish population in Israel, against observance of Jewish law, and that was what sparked what we know as the bar Kokhba Rebellion. And therefore our sages legislated a series of mourning practices in order to commemorate this tragedy. You think last year like Vahomer, we also experienced terrible tragedy in Miron, where 45 young Jewish people were sadly killed in this stampede that was unnecessary, that didn't have to happen. And we mourn their yard site today. You think of 24,000 teachers, future leaders, who were lost. Maybe for some reason, you know, there's always more women than men in our history. In Egypt, it was the males who were cast into the Nile River. In the desert, it was the men who had to bury themselves after the Chetam Araglin when the spies spoke derogatorily about the Holy Land of Israel. So, in this tragic story as well, there was 24,000 male students who died during this time. So, perhaps, again, maybe that's why a, polygamy was allowed throughout Jewish history until about a thousand years ago, and also why, also why there's always been that shidduch crisis impacting the woman, always more single ladies, again, this is just my observation, I'm not saying this in a, with empirical evidence per se, just my personal observation but that will leave that for another time. And we know that during this period between Pesach and Shavuos, accepting certain days according to different customs, but certainly from Rosh Chodesh Eir and Lag Baomer, we commemorate with no weddings, not taking haircuts, not listening to music, uh, not wearing or buying new clothing, and multiple other varieties of customs and laws that were enacted during this period, for us to commemorate these specific events. Now, on Lag Baomer, today, if you need a haircut, you want to have a wedding, you want to have uh, a variety, you you want to listen to music, come join us for our Bride this evening bonfire. Last night was a great event at Great Park Shul and so many other shul communities that had celebrations last night. And we continue today. And in fact, those who start the celebration of Lag Baumer, for example, if a wedding starts this afternoon, it could continue with music and all, all the way through the all the way through the uh, evening. Uh, many communities conclude all their morning tonight. So I believe that in the Sephardic tradition, the restrictions of the Omer are terminated once Lagba Omer comes in. I may stand corrected for that. The Ashkenaz community uh, continued the restrictions all the way through to the third of Sivan but even that many have taken on a, a leniencies, uh, certainly from Rosh Chodesh Sivan. Now the reason simply is because there are different shitot uh, perspectives of how to count to Omer. One perspective was that the dying stopped on the 33rd day, in which case, if you realize that the restrictions then are lifted from Lag Um I think there are other perspectives and say how to count these actual dates of the morning. So it gets a little bit more complicated and therefore um, one should follow what their specific tradition is in order to commemorate these days in the correct way, according to your particular tradition. I mean, I could take you through it, but I think just follow what your tradition is. You know, even in the Ashkenaz custom, the, the morning is seized, is terminated for today. And although it resumes, it continues tomorrow. So with that in mind, We understand that today is a very special and appropriate day. In fact, what I'd like to share with you, because you you might be wondering how we managed to preserve the Jewish, the, the oral tradition, despite the loss of these many young sages. And therefore, I would like to share with you what the Gemara tells us about this in just a moment. We'll be right back. Chai FM, 101.9 megahertz of life. Welcome back to Soul to Soul right here on 101.9. Chai FM, I'm your host, Rabbi Ari Keevman. And now I'd like to share with you what the Gemara, in tractate Yavamas, this is Daf Samach Beis, Amud Beis, that's a 62B, tells us about Rabbi Akiva, that he had 24,000 students from all over the country, from... The north to the south and the Gemara tells us how they all died during this time very very tragically the Talmud goes on to say how they suffered from croup they died a horrible tragic death a epidemic in that time and the Gemara goes on and tells us the world was demoralized until Rabbi Akiva went into the south and he taught the sages there and enumerates who were the sages, Rabbi Meir, Rabbi Yehuda, Rabbi Yosi, Rabbi Shimon, and Rabbi Elazar ben Shimon. When it says Rabbi Shimon, it's talking about Rabbi Shimon bar Yochai, who passed away on this day. So, as you can see, we have Rabbi Akiva Tatek, despite his old age, because by this time he was already advanced in years. And despite the terrible blow of seeing so many of his students as the Gemara tells us 24,000 students dying honestly before COVID it was a little hard for me to understand how that's possible but just do a Google search on how many people have died in the past two years from COVID-19 and no doubt it will resonate and thanks to Rabbi Akiva despite experiencing this terrible tragedy He was able to now preserve the teachings of the oral law. He nurtured these students. He trained the next generation of rabbis. He did not despair. He didn't give up. He found these new students and he taught them everything he knew. Very difficult starting from scratch. You know, indeed the Gemara goes on to quote Rabbi Akiva that if one studied Torah in his youth, he should continue to study in his old age. And if one taught students in his youth, he should teach more students in his old age. Because it said, in the morning plant your seed, and in the evening do not withhold your hand. So certainly for us as the Chabad Seniors Club here, I think this is a vital lesson. And all the more so, if in one's advanced years, you find that you have more time available to study Torah, then certainly you should seize the opportunity to do so. Rabbi Akiva taught the entire Torah to these five students. Basically, what he did with 24,000 students before, he did with five students now. He trained each one to specialize in one particular area of Torah, and the students to whom he taught the esoteric secrets of the Torah otherwise known as the Kabbalah was Rabbi Shimon Bar Yechai, the rabbi who passed away on this day many years later. And his passing is one of the reasons that we're celebrating this day. So I want to take a moment now to focus on some of the ideas that we just discussed. The Talmud tells us that the spiritual cause of Rabbi Akiva's students was that they failed to that the students of Rabbi Akiva, the Gemara tells us they failed to treat each other with respect. Now, no doubt, that itself is something that is quite surprising, because as you know, the teaching we read in last week's parsha, oh, sorry, the week before, Kedoshim, the Ahavta Larech HaKamalcha, What does Rabbi Akiva say about that? You know, there were many great sages throughout our history each one perhaps chose a particular verse of the Torah that to them was the penultimate verse that this verse perhaps represented like the, the, the Torah to them and it, it, it encapsulates all of the Torah maybe their favorite verse of the entire Torah and so to Rabbi Akiva we know Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva said to love your fellows yourself. This is the most fundamental, penultimate principle of the entire Torah. So, if Rabbi Akiva taught this, he likely practiced it, and he likely imbued this idea into his students that they should practice this concept. So, is it possible that Rabbi Akiva's students failed to absorb what their teacher considered the most important principle of the entire Torah? Now there's lots of answers to discuss, one is that Rabbi Akiva's students were not lacking in actual love for each other, that's not what they were lacking. They were lacking, the Gemara tells us covered what they were lacking was in respect for one another. Their love didn't translate into respect. There's a big difference between love and respect, there's no doubt that in your own family, or in your own little, in your own community, in your own circle of influence, there are people whom you love, and there are people whom you respect. And there's a difference between them. Hopefully there are people you love and respect. That's usually reserved for, your, you know, uh, important people in your life. Maybe parents, maybe, maybe your children, maybe your rabbi, who knows? But there are certainly family members Or others who maybe you love them because of that intrinsic inextricable connection you have with them But you don't necessarily respect them. And then of course there are those who perhaps You might respect. Maybe you have a a professor or a a TV personality or radio host, but you don't necessarily love those people. There's no there's no connection to love them so While on the surface, love and respect might seem similar. And of course, there's certainly overlap between them. But there's also a huge difference between love and respect. And in fact, it's one of the greatest challenges in any relationship is managing to balance the love and respect. Love is a powerful emotion that drives empathy and concern for others. In fact, in our Parsha this week, we have numerous instructions for the Torah about how to be empathetic to others, about how slaves are to be freed, and how to treat the others, and all the more so. The Torah tells us in a verse this week, V'chiyamuch chachicha imach That when your brother, whether literally, biologically, or, or figuratively speaking, a brother from another mother, becomes impoverished, destitute, It's interesting, the verse says, Imach, with you. Why does it have to say Imach? The verse could just have literally, have said plainly, Ki yom when your brother becomes impoverished, you should do such and such, all the different ways that you have to treat them. But the Torah specifically says, Imach, with you. Perhaps you have to feel yourself as if you're in their shoes. You have to feel their pain. You have to know what it feels like now on the same time i would say that as much as we have to be empathetic and be concerned for others too much love could also be overbearing it could be stifling we all know you know that phrase smothered with love for all the ladies out there i would say there's mother's love and smothered love and there's a big difference too much love or love that is untempered by respect can mean that we don't respect boundaries that we impose our ways of thinking on our beloved even in a marriage in a relationship you can't just fall in love you have to grow in love and that growth in love requires respect to respect boundaries to respect person's feelings There's, there's ways that this love has to be respected, not just um, not just love. You can't just smother. There has to be the balance of the two, and that's a very important aspect that has to be um, that has to be respected. I, I heard somebody say, "My daughter claims I don't respect her privacy." At least that's what she wrote in her diary. You know, a manager of a company felt disrespected by the staff. And one morning, he hung a sign on his office that read, I am the boss. When he came back from lunch break, he found a a tape note on the sign that said, your wife called, she wants her sign back. You see, my friends, respect gives the people we love the space that they need to make their own decisions, to walk, their own path and we need to respect them and their opinions even if we don't agree with them even in a marriage spouses are entitled to have different political opinions and maybe even different religious opinions and uh, unfortunately I've seen too many relationships that were harmed when each one went a different direction and didn't respect the other even though there was a deep love so Love has to be tempered with respect, but respect alone, again, is also not enough. Imagine watching someone jump off a cliff and doing nothing to save their life because we don't want to intrude in the other person's privacy. We respect their wishes. It's a a mishagas. Look what's going on in the world today. I saw a clipping of an interview in the United States. You know, I respect people's sexual orientation and I respect people's... uh, whatever they want to do, but honestly, I do think the world is going a little bit Meshuggah today. I saw a woman testifying in Congress that she believes a man could be pregnant if he wants. My, My goodness, gracious, to what degree are we going to respect people's opinions? And in today's world, we need to have this lesson more than ever. There's a tension between love and respect. Too much of either can throw off any relationship. So the key to a healthy relationship is to find the proper balance between the love and respect because untremeled love is smothering. It's invasive. And respect alone is distant. It's uncaring. So there needs to be the balance. And if we go back to the story of the students of Rabbi Akiva, the Talmud doesn't say that we're lacking in love for each other. And remember, Rabbi Akiva taught, To love your fellow as yourself is is the most fundamental principle. The Talmud tells us they were lacking in respect. And this tells us Rabbi Akiva's students, they didn't fail to learn Rabbi Akiva's teaching on love, but they failed to balance it with respect. And in a sense, you could say that's human nature. Each of the students had a unique, nuanced understanding of Rabbi Akiva's teaching. Because each one is imbued with a deep love of his fellows, as their teacher, Rabbi Akiva, taught them. So each one was anxious to share their unique understandings of the others. And thinking that their way was the only way. That this was the correct understanding of the Torah. Only this way, and that's all. There's no other way of seeing it when the others proved resistant to his view because they persisted in clinging on to their own views you know what happened? then all of a sudden they were incapable of respecting them because he couldn't respect the path that they chose so even though they continued to love them unconditionally as Rabbi Akiva taught without a doubt, had any of his fellows been in need I have no doubt they would come to each other's assistance The disrespect was in their minds. I'm sure they didn't behave disrespectfully to each other, and that certainly wouldn't be a loving behavior. But you know, when only my perspective is the right way, we've got a problem. And that's one of the things the Talmud is telling us that Rabbi Akiva's students lacked him. Maybe they were successful in absorbing Rabbi Akiva's teachings about love but it was their deep love and concern for their fellows that led them to disrespect. Had they not sufficiently cared for one another they would not have felt the need to help each other to correct what perhaps they saw as the flaw a different way of thinking. In other words, they failed to find the proper balance between love and respect. Their focus on Rabbi Akiva's teachings on love filled them with a love so intense that they couldn't temper it with respect. They were unable to see their colleagues as discreet human beings with unique personalities, with opinions and views as valid as their own. So, my friends, as we mourn their loss during this period of the Omer, and as we celebrate today the end of the plague, the end of that epidemic back then, we have to take the time to reflect on the importance of healthy relationships. To follow the teachings of the Torah is not only about serving God. It's also about connecting properly with others. Look in our Parsha this week. In Bahar it's talking about Mount Sinai where God gave us the Torah. And look how many of the laws in our Parsha are about interpersonal connections that we have with others. Look at the portion Kedoshim that we read last week in Emor; Those portions also. How do you be holy? It's all about how you treat others. So just as there are mitzvahs that are between us and God, there are obviously rituals that connect us to Hashem, but there are also mitzvahs, and so many of them that are between us and others, our social behaviors. God wants us to have healthy relationships with others. And to do so, we have to strike a balance between love and respect. We have to practice tempering our love with respect, and balancing our respect with love. And certainly during this period of the Omer, when we devote every day to refining another aspect of our character in becoming better people. We dis- we've previously discussed many examples when you look at the, each of the days of the Omer, each day we have to fine-tune another aspect of our relationships so that we could achieve the proper balance between love and respect. We'll be right back in a moment. Chai FM, 101.9 megahertz of life. Welcome back to Soul to Soul, right here on 101.9 Chai FM. I'm your host, Rabbi Ari Kivman, And as we've been discussing that today, Lagva Omar, we celebrate for two reasons. We discussed the tragic passing of the students of Rabbi Akiva. Now let's talk about the passing of one of his great students, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. And as we said that Rabbi Shimon, he was a great sage, a surviving student of Rabbi Akiva. He lived a very long life and he successfully disseminated everything that Rabbi Akiva taught him. He was well known for his teachings on Talmud. As you could open any Gemara and Mishnah, you'll see his teachings often on halacha, Jewish law, but he was best known for his teachings on Kabbalah. Rabbi Shimon's teachings were compiled and transcribed by his students and were eventually published in the Zohar. What is the meaning of the very word Zohar? Zohar means a radiant shining light. For many centuries the manuscript of the Zohar was actually unknown. It was discovered and published really in the 13th century in Spain by a Kabbalist named Moshe de Leon and though many you know the the Zohar was um, very well accepted among the Mekubbalim around the world and the teachings of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yechai were were became even more renowned then now the um, how would I put this to you the Zohar describes the remarkable fashion in which Rabbi Shimon passed away. It says on the day of his passing, he proclaimed that he received heavenly permission to reveal mystical secrets that he wanted to share his entire life, but was unable to do so by heavenly decree. And he went on to reveal these Kabbalistic mysteries that had never been taught. And as he taught, his face shone with this celestial brightness it was impossible to gaze on him. The Gemara describes this great light that enveloped his bed and his students could hear him but cannot see him. And they sat around absorbing his teachings and transcribing them. And His last words were from Tehillim from Psalms in chapter 133. He says, from there God had commanded the blessings of everlasting life. It it describes how everything was still in the room. No one could peer through the veil of light to determine whether the end had arrived, but they realized that their teacher returned his soul above, and when he said those words, everlasting life. So they, they mourned his passing all day, and towards the end of that day, the veil lifted, and they could see Rabbi Shimon lying on his right side with a serene smile upon his face. When they carried him on his final journey, a baskal, a heavenly voice called out, Arise and assemble for the celebration of Rabbi Shimon. May you arrive in peace and may you repose upon your resting place. These words, by the way, are read are, are red, um, in the Main HaLashem, which is a compilation of passages said at the resting places of all righteous people. So the idea that the Zohar is telling us here is how Rabbi Shimon's passing, despite it being a sad day for his students, for this, for those who are left behind, but realizing that Rabbi Shimon passed away With the word LIFE on his lips, with his last spoken word he implied that LIFE is not followed by DEATH. LIFE on earth is followed by the everlasting life of the soul. That death is not the end of life, it's the end of life how we know it. But the soul continues to live on for eternity. The celestial light that surrounded him, that the Zohar describes, symbolized the continued life of his soul. Which is described by Shlomo Malach, King Solomon Tehillim, as Ner Hashem Nishma Sadam, The light of God is the soul of man. And this heavenly voice proclaimed that Rabbi Shimon's funeral procession was a celebration. A joyful event, a Hilula, like a wedding. And this teaches us that the soul rejoices when it returns to heaven, like a bride rejoices when she is wed with her husband. A very similar analogy is used for Shavuos, when we celebrate our marriage with God, when we receive the Torah, which is like the ketubah, the marriage contract. And all the day of a passing indeed is a sad day for family and friends who and mourn the earthly presence of their loved one. But something I often mention at funerals when I officiate is that it's also in a sense a day of joy for the soul. It's, you know, this is not just about holy, righteous, pious people. It's true for all people. But it's especially evident when a person... As righteous and as holy as Rabbi Shimon bar Yochai passes away. Since his life on earth was driven, was dominated by his soul's connection with God, the soul's joy over returning to heaven and strengthening this connection is obviously evident to all. And this is what we celebrate in Lag Omer. It's a day to dwell on the soul of Rabbi Shimon, the purpose of why our soul comes into this world and the joy that it takes from fostering a connection to God. For as long as we live a soul in a body, this connection is best cultivated when we work to fulfill the purpose of why we were placed here on earth. Why did God put us into this world? We are a soul in a physical body, having, experiencing our journey in this world. But it's the soul existed before, the soul continues after. And so this is what we commemorate on the passing of Rabbi Shimon. So I think it's important that we should examine some of the values by which Rabbi Shimon lived his life. And see that his life was indeed dominated by the passion of his soul. So let me share with you something the Gemara says. Masechet brachas, tracte brachas and lamad hei 35b. It says, what are we to infer from the Torah's instruction where it says, We say it in the Shema every day, gather your grains. Now one might assume that the passage, in it says in Joshua, the Torah scroll must never depart, should never depart from your lips, that it should be understood literally as an instruction to study the Torah all day long. Now, of course, the Gemara is telling us, is that realistic? Therefore, the Torah tells us and instructs us, No, you have to have time to work, to gather your grains. You have to behave in a manner of the world in order to earn a living. In, in Pirate Yavad that we're studying these days, we read, In order to absorb the Torah, you have to know the ways of the land, which is also understood about being a mensch. Yafeh, that it's important to have Torah with an income, with business, to be independent, independent financially, not to rely on others per se. I speak here as a rabbi who is dependent on communal uh, funds. Certainly it's nice to have financial independence. So Rabbi Yishmael tells us, that that's the opinion of Rabbi Yishmael. the Mishnah says. Rabbi Shimon, bar Yechai on the other hand, he says, if a person plows in the plowing season plants in the planting season reaps in the reaping season threshes in the threshing season and winnows when the wind blows then when will he study torah therefore the gemara is telling us the opinion of rabbi shimon bar you have to figure out ways to work less and study more maybe you should spend your whole life in kola and You even have Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai to back you up. Abayah was one of the great Talmudic sages of the time. He said many followed Rabbi Yishmael's path and were successful. Many followed Rabbi Shimon's path but were unsuccessful. Now the question is, how do you determine what is the meaning of success? Is success financial success or is success spiritual? You could obviously see that Rabbi Shimon demanded a very high standard for himself and for others. He believed that we should devote our life completely to matters of holiness, of prayer, of Torah study, of spirituality. Leave all the worries of sustenance to God. But Abayah tells us that most people who followed Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai's way were not able to live a quality of life. It's not a realistic standard for the rovam for most people and although many were inspired to try, he said most people were not successful in maintaining Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai's lifestyle. So as we, when we discussed Rabbi Akiva's students before, we mentioned that idea that tension between love and respect, the importance of resolving or finding the proper balance between them. In that sense, you know, when we look at the the life of Rabbi Akiva's most remarkable student, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, we realize a very similar tension between competing values. Just that, you know, he touches on a a much deeper and more theological aspect of life. And this is something that is discussed in the Gemara, in in the Talmud, Jewish he interacted Sanhedrin. And in fact Rabbi Shimon says You know Rabbi Shimon was a very deeply spiritual person Now in the Gemara here, it's telling us there's a debate between Rabbi Shimon and Rabbi Ishmael They both agreed essentially that the soul descends from heaven to fulfill a spiritual purpose on earth They both agree that a large part of this purpose is found in our study of Torah, in our observance and fulfillment of mitzvahs. Both agreed that to survive on earth you have to eat and you have to shelter and you need clothing and all that. Where they disagreed was how you should go about achieving these things. Should you go out and work and have minimal amount of Torah study each day or should you spend your day immersed in Torah study and leave the questions of sustenance to God. Rabbi Shema Baruch, I could not comprehend wasting so much of the day on, on means of, uh, to preserve your life. He says working is a means to an end. You achieved what you need. Now go study. Go connect spiritually. He, he just couldn't comprehend. He wanted everyone to devote the bulk of their day to fulfilling their divine spiritual mission in life. How would we find the means to sustain ourselves? He says, rely on God. God will take care of you. Now, of course, Abaya said this wasn't something that was necessarily achievable for most people. The Gemara tells us that Rabbi Elazar, the son of Rabbi Shimon, his wife refused to serve him one morning and a group of sailors arrived and they provided him. So it's perhaps telling us uh, that it's possible that our our needs can come from elsewhere. Rabbi Shimon lived that way and God provided for his needs. Abaya, though was telling us that only a few people are that focused and maybe privileged to merit such a spiritual lifestyle. Abaya said many were unsuccessful. Not that everyone's unsuccessful, most people cannot live up to the standard. And therefore, Abaya was endorsing the view of Rabbi Yishmael. That although we dedicate most of our day to gathering the means to preserve life and only a small portion of our day to the purpose of life, nevertheless, since this is the way of life, it must be that this is the way that God wants us to behave. God wants us to allow Him to sustain us through our work. Now, since both opinions are mentioned in the Gemara, can the two approaches really, truly meet? Or is this always going to be this tension? Will those who work hold it against those who are studying? We know always there was the partnership of Yisachar and Zavulim. Yisachar would would be supported by the work of Zavulim. So certainly there's ways of bridging this gap. And one has to synthesize both approaches. Ultimately, that's the way one has to. And in fact, the story is told that Rabbi Shimon was once conversing with his colleagues. One of them suggested that the Romans had done so much good for Israel. Look, although they invaded our land and they conquered and destroyed our temple, let's look at the positive. And he described how they look. they built the roads and the bridges and, and commerce and, and theaters now rabbi shimon he said that everything they did was for their own immoral purposes they didn't do it to help us the gemara goes on to say that there was somebody listening into the conversation you know how it was back in soviet russia and the former ussr they say if you're sitting down with three people, two of them were probably KGB informants. And the, the news got back to the emperor of Rome. Well, this wasn't uh, very well received by the Roman authorities. And unfortunately, Rabbi Shimon bar Yachai was forced into hiding. The Gemara describes how at first he was holed up in a shul, a nondescript a base of Medrash somewhere in Israel and his wife would clandestinely supply him with food every day but then he realized that this was not good for the safety of his wife if the Romans decide to torture her to find out where he was he didn't want to compromise her well-being it was better off if no one including his wife knew his location where he was so he fled, he went into hiding he took his son with him and they retired to a cave where they remained hidden for 13 years. Actually first it was 12 years and then they came out, but they weren't ready to readapt into society. Uh, Oftentimes when people, regardless of where they are, you know, people who are stuck in a hospital for some time need some kind of therapy to readapt to the world and uh, those who were incarcerated oftentimes need that. So when we talked about the Carib yesterday, the miracle the Gemara says is that they survived by a carob tree that basically sustained them with food throughout that period and this wellspring that appeared outside the cave. Also, the carob tree the Gemara says hid them, that they weren't seen by anyone outside. You know, if drones were coming by the cave, they wouldn't be found. Now they didn't have Santa city nearby, they couldn't go shopping for clothing. So how did they survive? How did they keep their clothes going? So the Talmud tells us that they actually only dressed in their clothes for prayers. The rest of the day, they remained in their birthday suits, but they covered themselves in sand. And that's how they would respectfully study Torah the rest of their time. So as you see, this is, the, this is part of the stories of Rabbi Shema, that they went into hiding with no means of support, they spent their day studying and praying, under, under normal, ordinary circumstances, they would have perished.